So I'm glad we're here. I'm going to jump in. Um, I want to I want to focus on this 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 pasuk in um, in Parshas Bamidbar, and the subject is really about um, waking up in the morning, and I think that's a very a very challenging thing how to how to wake up in the morning, and um, the the Shulchan Aruch, the Code of Jewish Law, actually on the very first page talks about how how to do it, and it says that you have to. Uh, you have to rise from your bed like a lion. Ka'ari. So that's, that's, that's a great bit of imagery. You know, you imagine just a lion leaping, leaping out of bed. Um, I heard Reb Shlomo say one time that the, the lion was the king of the animals because it wasn't afraid of the other animals. It was fearless. So there's a degree of fearlessness um, that one has to summon in the morning. So how do you do that exactly? And um, so there are different techniques, but but I want to connect that to um, to something uh, more. It's going to kind of sound like a, a, a strange connection at first, but you'll see where I'm going with this. It's um, from Parshas Bamidbar. It's uh, actually chapter four, verse thirteen. This is a a great case in point of how you really need to learn Chumash uh, uh, with Rashi. Because I'm going to read you the, the verse from, from the Torah, and it will sound like the most innocent verse in the entire world. And then you'll hear the Rashi on it, and it will sound, whoa, it's going to sound like a different world. Okay, so here it is, verse 13. They shall clear the ash from the altar and spread a cloth of purple wool over it. So that sounds pretty cut and dry, <laughs> very technical. Uh, just to give you some context, what it's talking about is... When they're, remember the, um, the Mishkan, the, the holy tabernacle in the desert, when it went from spot to spot, they would have to break it down. And then they move it to another place. And the job of who took what parts and how they um, packaged them up, you know, wrapped them up for, for transport, this was all uh, specified in, in the Torah itself. So now we're talking about how to dismantle the, the altar. And they say, okay, so... You're going to take that and you're going to put some purple cloth over it and that'll be that. Okay, so sounds good. So here's the Rashi on it. Let me read the verse one more time. They shall clear the ash from the altar and spread a cloth of purple wool over it. The Hebrew for the purple wool is argaman. Okay, so here's what Rashi says. And spread a cloth of purple wool over it. And the fire that had descended from the heavens would crouch beneath the cloth like a lion at the time of the journeys. And it would not burn the cloth, because they would turn a large copper pot over it. So, that's a, that's a lot of extra information. <laughs> so, let's, let's work on the first part first. And the fire that had descended from the heavens, right, would crouch beneath the cloth. Okay, so what are we referring to, the fire that uh, descended from the heavens? So this is an important piece of information. Um, we know from having studied the dedication of the, of the Mishkan and of the Holy Altar that um, the, uh, the initial fire which lit it was not man-made, but it was a fire descended from heaven, and it came down. Now, think about it. I never really thought about it exactly, but that initial fire from heaven was kept going. In other words, if you had a fire from heaven 
you probably wouldn't let it burn out either. Well, that's what they were thinking. In fact, there may have been some specific instructions also that they shouldn't. But nonetheless, that fire was remained the fire from heaven. They just fed it with more wood or whatever it is they needed to keep it going. And when they would transport the, um, the, the altar, which had this fire from heaven, it would keep going. It didn't go out. And not only didn't go out, but it assumed a very striking pose Rashi is bringing down. And by the way, Rashi is getting this um, from the Gomorrah, the Talmud, in Yuma, 21b. Let me just digress for a moment. Just, let's just finish this bit of imagery before we make this point about Rashi. Is that, so, so you have this fire from heaven. It's kept going. Now when they transport it, it's crouching like a lion, right? It's not going away. It's poised. You know, it's not just a simple fire. I guess a simple fire would just sort of like just stay flickering or burning, right? If you kept it going. But a fire from heaven, you know, that's something else. It's crouching like a lion, getting ready to do its job. Now keep in the back of your mind what we started off with, that we have to get out of bed like a lion. Okay, we're going to get back to that. But, but anyway, so, so this is just for our own, for our own um, scholarship and our own um, education of how to understand Torah. I, I just want to make this point. It's not an obvious point to everyone. Um, so, first of all, you have to understand, and this is not, God forbid, a million, billion times to slight um, Rashi in the slightest, um, but we have to understand what Rashi is doing. Rashi's greatness is, is unquestioned. But what we need to know is that um, perhaps most of the time he's bringing his comments, he's bringing them from the Talmud, or he's bringing them from the Medrash, and he's choosing which ones to bring and which ones are most relevant and giving us insight into what the Torah is saying. In other words, it's, it's Rashi does give his own interpretation, but most of the time when, when Rashi is bringing something, it's not Rashi himself who's saying it, but Rashi is bringing a comment from, say, the Gomorrah or something like this. So this is a classic example. Most people in just casual Torah conversation would say, yeah, Rashi says the fire would crouch like a lion. Okay, but it's, Rashi is bringing that from the Gomorrah. Now, I've only made half the point. The, the real point that I'm trying to make is that Rashi can't say that on his own. And let me explain what I mean by that. Rashi cannot say, Rashi wasn't there. Rashi can't say that the fire would crouch like a lion. That's a brand new fact. It's a brand new... Do, do you understand what I'm saying? In other words, like, let's say... I'll give you kind of a crazy example off the top of my head. Let's say I'm talking about the Garden of Eden, right? And I say... Um, and I want to make an, an original interpretation. And so I say... Um, uh, by purposes... My intent is to explain what the Torah is saying. And I say, well, there's um, the Garden of there, there's the Garden of Eden, and there's the Tree of Knowledge, and next to the Tree of Knowledge is a hot dog stand. Well, that's a new piece of information. I can't me in the 21st century. 
I can't add that to the story. If there's a medrash that said there's a hot dog stand next to the tree of knowledge, and their intent is to teach something about the variety of choices that were there, then the medrash or an ancient source can say that, but I can't add a new fact or a new piece of information. I can say that, well, the tree of knowledge was like a hot dog stand in that, and now this is my own way of trying to explain the point of the Torah, but I can't add a new fact to the story that there was a hot dog stand there. Do you understand the difference? So Rashi cannot say that the fire crouched like a lion. That's a new piece of information. He can bring that from the Gomorrah. Does everyone understand? Because this is, this is important in understanding the, the evolution of Torah commentary and what, what one can say and one, what can't say. One can, one can try to explicate what's in the text and even compare it to something else, but one can't outright add a new fact to the story. Okay, so that's, 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 that's a subtle point, but that, that will add in, in terms of our sophistication in, in, in analyzing sources. Okay, so now, so now let's get back to this. Rashi now wants to explain something, which is great. This now, here you see, really, the greatness of Rashi, uh, or, or one thing that he does all the time is he explains things that, basic questions that you'd have on the text. All right? Now, the basic question I would have on the text, let's, let's go back to the, 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 the verse. They shall clear the ash from the altar. All right, now we know that there's a fire on the altar still. We just have to know that from another source, that they're not going to let that fire go out. Okay? They shall clear the ash from the altar and spread a cloth of purple wool over it. Well, my question is, why isn't that wool, wool and cloth being set on fire? If there's a fire there, and I'm putting a cloth on it made out of wool, it's going to burn up. Okay, so now Rashi is answering that question, that very basic question on the text. He's throwing in this great thing about the lion and also telling us that there was a fire there to begin with. Don't think there wasn't a fire there. And where did that fire come from? That's the original fire that lit it from heaven. But now he's being super practical. He's telling you there was a copper pot over the fire that stopped the purple cloth from burning up. Just a very basic piece of information. So Rashi's like giving you, he's answering a lot of questions, he's filling in a lot of details that you may, maybe weren't aware of or thinking about at that moment. Okay. So, so very good. So now let's get back to waking up in the morning. So the connection I want to make is, is the following. We said in the Code of Jewish Law, the Shulchan Aruch, says you have to get out of bed in the morning like a, like a lion. Ka'ari. He uses the same language. That the lion of fire crouched. Ka'ari. Like a, like a lion, right? So, so, so you know something. What was, what was, what was crouching like a lion made out of fire, this original fire that came from heaven. 
So this is talking about all of us. When we're born, our neshama comes down into our body. That's like the fire coming down from heaven. And when we go to sleep, that's kind of like a holding pattern. Right? Because the Mizbeach, when it's being transported from one place to another, it's in a holding pattern. When we go to sleep, we're in a holding pattern also. We're being transferred, if you will, from night to day. And so, we ourselves, our neshama, which is like the fire that came down from heaven, our neshama itself has to crouch down, right, like a lion, and get ready to spring into the day. Now, we also have, if you will, to get a little homiletic on you, we have a, a, a blanket over us, a blanket of sleep, or a blanket of polyester fiber <laughs> that we have to break through. And I was discussing this with a rabbi, and he said, yeah, we also have to break through the copper pot. Because <laughs> for many of us, there's, it's more than just a, a thin piece of cotton that's separating us from the world in the morning. There's a, there's a copper pot there that we have to break through as well. Um, so, so, so how do we do that? How do we do that? So now this gets a little bit deeper. You see, believe it or not, this is not the only lion of fire that's referred to in the Torah. There's another lion of fire um, that the Gomorrah talks about. And the sages got together and they davened. This is at the time of the base of Mikdash. And they knew troubles were coming onto the Jewish people. And they wanted to do what they could do to weaken the Yetzirah, the evil inclination. And so they, they, they davened, and they davened very, 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 very strongly for like a long period of time. And this is really probably one of the great prayer sessions that uh, ever took place. And they succeeded. A lion of fire came down in a cage. And the sages say that this lion of fire was a very different lion of fire. That this was the Yetzirah, the evil inclination incarnate. That it came down. And they were able to trap it in this cage. Okay, so now we're talking on a very, very deep level. Was there actually a lion made out of fire here? Was it actually in a cage? I, I can't answer that. You have to look into the commentaries. But this is the way the Talmud is, is relating the account. So, so you have to understand something. And Jeff, I remember you told me this point, and it's a very beautiful point. When we're talking about... See, these... These, um, these, th- these areas of the Talmud are called agadata. Um... They're the non-legal parts of the Talmud. Okay? And in fact, there's a collection of all of the Agadita of the Torah. In other words, the, it's a book called the Ein Yaakov. And they went and they removed, they took all the stories, if you will. And they just put it in one set of volumes. And these are all of the non-halachic, non-legal aspects of the Gomorrah. They also have another collection, which is only the legal aspects of the Gomorrah. 
So that, that exists too. So you should know. Now when it comes to Agadita, there are different approaches to Agadita. One approach is, if it says it's a lion of fire, it was a lion of fire. That's what it was. Okay, very good. That works. Or, perhaps, it wasn't a lion made out of fire. But, it's... The, the point that they're trying to make is a true point. And the best way to make this philosophical point, if you will, which is a true point, which is truth, is through this bit of imagery, through a lion of fire. So, so in other words, it's true. It's, it wasn't necessarily a lion of fire, but that doesn't make it not true. The point that it's making is a true point. They're just expressing it in this way. So, so, so again, in terms of adding to our level of sophistication in understanding the way the Torah works and the way the Torah explains things, it's really an ignoramus. It's really a simple, unlearned person who would say something like, oh, well, there wasn't a giant who was 30 feet tall who bit into a mountain. That's ridiculous. No, you're ridiculous because you don't understand the way the Torah is teaching. It's making a point, and that point is 100% true. It's just making it with this imagery. Now, there will be times in... Now, by the way, these approaches are not mutually exclusive, meaning to say there will be times where, let's say it's a giant. No, there actually was a giant. Okay, so it doesn't always mean you don't have to pick a side and say either that's always going to be true, the wild imagery, or it's never going to be true. It's just illustrating a true point. Sometimes the wild imagery is, in fact, that's what it is. You know, it, it was wild. That was, a, that was a wild thing. You know, there's something, I'll tell you, I want to look into it some more, but I'll just, I'll just uh, kind of give you the, 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 there's just the basic bit of information, which I love. I want to see the commentaries on this. Serach was the daughter of Asher. And it says Serach was one of these people who like lived forever and who went up to Shemayim like alive or something like that. There's a small group of people uh, that, that had that privilege. Um, uh, Eliyahu maybe being the most famous um, Serach this daughter of Asher was is most famous because she's the one who told Yaakov Avinu uh, our holy father Jacob that Yosef was still alive alright now why, why did she tell him well listen to this this is it's, this is kind of slightly comedic. I don't know if that's the right word to use, but... The sons of Jacob see that Yosef is alive, and now they have to tell their father Yosef's alive. What's the problem? It's such good news, it's going to kill him. <laughs> how, do you, how do you tell him this piece of news which is such good news that it will kill him in happiness because he's going to have a heart attack when he hears it. Right? It's a, I've never had this problem in my life. Have you ever had this problem? They had this problem. This is a very real problem. How, how are we going to tell them? So they went to Sarah, who must have been 
widely known for her wisdom must have been. She must have been an incredibly brilliant woman and highly respected woman that they've got the major, this is like a historic piece of information. They went to her. Obviously, she was hugely great in their eyes. So, the classic, the classic explanation is what she did was she used to play the harp for Yaakov and that while she was playing the harp and while she was playing music, she communicated it to Jacob. And that's how she got the information across. Okay, I heard another explanation, by the way. This is, by the way, all by way of introducing Sarah to you, but we're going to get back to Agatha in a moment. Another explanation that's brought is what she did was she waited for Yaakov Avinu to start davening. Now, it didn't have particular details, but for argument's sake, let's say he was in Shemona Esrei. And when you're in Shemona Esrei, you, um, you know, you can't have a conversation because you're in the middle of it. And she, she basically whispered while he was in Shemona, while he was davening that God, God, she gave him the information that Yosef's alive. So just a, another interesting way of doing it because he, he couldn't go, what? Or stop saying that or really? Because he was, he was in the middle of davening. He was connecting with Hashem. So, so in other words, anyway, just a, a very interesting solution, right? That's, that's the moment that she chose. Or she did it while she was playing music, whichever one. I'm sure they're both illustrating two sides of what happened. Okay, so now I bring up Sarah because, um, because I want to make this point that sometimes the wild thing really is the wild thing. Okay, so it says Rabbi Yochanan, who's one of the great sages from the Gomorrah, Rabbi Yochanan was teaching about the splitting of the sea. Now remember, Sarah got a blessing because she effectively was able to give over this news, and this was a major job that she had, and she did it successfully, she got a blessing that she was basically going to live forever. And it says that she ascended alive to heaven, one of the few people who did that. So, so Rabbi Yochanan, now this is maybe, I don't know when Rabbi Yochanan is living, but, you know, maybe 2,000 years ago. I mean, this is a good, this is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years after the splitting of the sea, okay? Rabbi Yochanan is teaching about the um, various miracles that happen when the sea parted. And he says to his students there, he says that the walls of the sea were like a lattice. That's the English. Okay, I didn't... Let's trust that that's a good translation. A lattice, by the way, is sort of like a... a if you don't know, like a, a crisscross kind of like fence, you see them in gardens and things like that, but they have like holes in the middle, right? They have big openings and it's kind of a decorative fence. So, so Rabbi Yochanan says the walls holding up the water were like lattices. Now he's illustrating a, a, a point there. I'm not exactly sure what it is, but God willing, I'll have a chance to look into it somewhere. And then Sarah says, no, it was like glass walls. And she says, and I know because I was there. That's, that's the end of the teaching there. So, 
So, anyway, interesting, interesting. It's a very interesting teaching because Serach, for this to take place, has to be hundreds of years old. Not only that, but, but what she's doing is this several hundred year old woman is telling Rabbi Yochanan that his more fanciful explanation is not the case. It's this more grounded explanation. So there's so many different uh, currents of, of uh, you know, of the here and now, like sort of interfacing in that teaching. But God willing, like I said, I'll, I'll be able to look into it some more and give you some more information about that. Okay, so now let's get back to this. We've got a lion made out of fire, which now is symbolizing the Yetzirah, that the sages were able to bring down because they say bad times are coming on Israel, we have to weaken the, the, um, the level of temptation that the Jews are going to face. We need to counteract it. And so they daven, a lion of fire comes down, it symbolizes the evil inclination, the Yitzhahara, and it's in a cage. What happens? It says the next morning they went out, it's an amazing teaching, the next morning they went out, and no chickens were laying any eggs. What does that mean? What it means is that the reproductive drive had completely been canceled out by the sages. When they got rid of the eight Sahara outright, they also eliminated the reproductive drive in the world. And they realized that if they do that, the world is going to become a desolate place. You need some Yetzirah in the world. You need some of this primal driving force in the world. It just has to be properly channeled. When it's elevated, then that's an awesome thing. But it's a crucial element to the mix. It's got to be part of the mix. It's not just that it can't be there at all. It's there. But then once it becomes contextualized and elevated, then you've got serious holiness going on. And you know... If you think about it, this reproductive drive really does build up the world. You know, and I'll give you just a simple example of it. A young man, say, wants to, uh, sees a, a woman, and he wants to be with this woman. And he says, okay, um, I want to marry this woman. And then he says, but wait a second, um, you know, she if, she, if we start a family together, she's going to, I'm going to have to have a job and everything like this. So in order for him to be with this woman, to marry this woman, he's got to go and get a job. And then he's got a career going. Now that's building up the world. Now he is able to marry this woman. So in other words, just to get to this, this uh, essential um connection between male and female, there's a lot of other stuff that needs to be done. And it results in the building up of the world. So it's a, a, a very a very interesting dynamic that, that, that takes place. Um, so what did the sages do? They realized we need a little more Yetzirah in the world. We need some Yetzirah in the world, you know? So it says that they poked out one of the eyes of the lion. 
And then that got rid of the temptation for incest and adultery. Okay? So, that's what it says in the Gomorrah. So there's a certain, certain sort of uh, more exotic forms of licentiousness <laughs> it was able to kind of do away with, but it still left some Yitzhahara in the world that, that we still had free choice in these matters and, and, and we'd be able to elevate it, but it had become weakened. Okay. But now the essential point here as it relates to our discussion, the fire coming down from heaven and waking up in the morning and all the rest is, now we see we have two lions made out of fire. We have the lion made out of fire, which Rashi is referring to in this Pasuk, which is, which is a form of the fire that came down from heaven when the Mizbeach, when the altar was first lit, right? So that represents the Yetzir Tov. That's the good inclination. Then we've got a lion made out of fire that the sages brought down in order to weaken the Yet Sahara. So two lions made out of fire in different places of the Torah, one representing our positive inclination, one representing our negative incl- inclination. Now, look where you see this right in the Torah itself. By the way, up until now, this is my own analysis, just to keep the sources straight. So it says in the Torah, it says um, that you should keep these words. This is in the uh, in the uh, in the Shema. You should keep these words, Al Levavecha, on your heart. Okay. Now, technically, we say on your heart, but there's something kind of funny there, which is there are two. The, the letter, the way you spell heart is Lamed Vez, Lev. That means heart. Okay? But it's spelled with two vases, which means that, technically speaking, what it says is that on your hearts, on your two hearts. So how many hearts does a... This is what the sages, the sages key in on this. They say, wow, you know, two vases, Hashem knows how to spell the word heart. <laughs> if he's throwing in another vase in there and he's making the word heart plural then on some deep level, we've got more than one heart. What does that mean? So what it says is, the sages answer, ah, we've got a positive inclination and a negative inclination. And we have to take both of our hearts and use them to serve Hashem. Okay, so now, the fact that we've got two different images for this lion of fire and waking up in the morning, if you will, now all of a sudden it fits in very, very nicely with what the Torah is saying. So when one gets up in the morning, one has to marshal their negative inclination. Right? This is, usually this is fear. This is usually fear. To not be afraid. To not be afraid. And their positive inclination, which is to go out there and to build the world. Right? You know, my, uh, my eight-year-old was saying, uh, 
was, his name is Mendy. He said, the other day he said, he said, I'm going to open up a steakhouse and I'm going to call it Mendy's Steakhouse. And I said to him, you know, there's a Mendy's Steakhouse in New York. Right? What are the odds, right? That, that there actually is that. So he said, no, he doesn't know anything about, he's eight, right? He doesn't know anything about business. He doesn't know anything about that. But he says, he says, that Mendy's got to be afraid of me. <laughs> So, so you know something. There's, there's an interesting teaching in the Talmud that we really have to know, especially in these times, which is that uh, it says that there was a family among the Jews at the time of the base of Migdash that had this um, secret recipe, basically, for how to mix the spices for the incense for the base of Migdash. Now, you know, there were several miracles that happened with, the, with this incense. First of all, it smelled great, and the whole city smelled great. I mean, it wasn't just in the base of Migdash. It spread out, and it, it would go up in a straight column, and even when wind would blow, it wouldn't mess it up. So, you know, there was a um, basically a secret formula. And uh, it said that this family didn't share the secret with, with anyone else, and it said the the Gemara says that they that that this was not a good thing, and that the reason why they didn't do it was because they were afraid if we share it, we'll become replaced. Like now, everyone will know, and we'll, we're, we're going to put ourselves out of a job. And the Gemara goes on to explain that if a job is meant for someone. No one else can take away that job. So all of us have a very unique job in the world that no one can take away. We have that job. The problem is is that a lot of times we don't know what job we have. So we're, we're jealously guarding territories that really aren't necessarily our territories. And we feel threatened, and probably rightly so, because they aren't really aren't our territories, you know. But the job that we do have, no one can take away from us. Not only that, but as we all know, each of us has a job that no one else has. That's probably why the job can't be taken away from us, because each one of us has a unique mission in this world. We have to remind ourselves of that. And we have to understand that when we wake up in the morning, that we don't have to be afraid because the job that we really have been assigned to, we can't lose. And that job comes with a salary. It may not necessarily be the salary we want, but that job comes with a salary. In other words, God is going to feed us Remember, it says, Hashem feeds every single creature in the universe. Because every single creature in the universe has a job that can't be taken away from it and has a salary connected with it. And so, and obviously I'm talking on a deeper level right now. I'm not talking about, oh, my job is I work at Wendy's, right? It's not, it's not that. It's on a deeper level. It's on a deeper level. 
This is one of the important points that we also have to know, which is that so many of us define ourselves by our occupation. What are you? Um, I'm a writer. What are you? I'm a, you know, whatever, steel worker. But what am I? I'm a human being. I'm a Jew. I'm an Hashemah. You know, that, that's what I am. In other words, we have to resist this trap of these superficial um, definitions that we put on ourselves in terms of defining ourselves and things like that. Because who we really are, that's, that's, that's our job in this world. That's our mission in this world. And that's got, that's got a very reliable employer attached to it. And if we remember that in the morning, we know no one else is going to take our job and no one else is going to be able to do our job. We've got to get out there in the world and do it. And when you know that, when you've got a certain sense of job security, you can rise like a lion. You can rise like a lion. You can really get out because no one is stopping you and no one is threatening you. And you don't have to be afraid of anyone, like a lion. You don't have to be afraid. Um, On another level, you know, I think that the word Ari begins with the letter Aleph. So, rising like a lion, you know, you have that, that Aleph before you of Hashem. And just, he's the only power. He's one and one alone. There's no other power out there. And you can just, you have to understand that, just like the lion is not afraid of anyone else, we, we can't be afraid of other people. I'll tell you a technique that I once did, it was helpful to me. During one period in my life, I'll share it with you. Maybe it will help you, in case there are people out there that just freak you out. <laughs> Which is one time there was I was working with someone who just like really uh, kind of just bothered me, let's say. And I imagined a hula hoop around that person, around their waist. <laughs> and I said, you know, that person's, because everything is from God, right? So I said, you know, that person's influence goes about a foot in front of them and then it stops. It's contained around them. And if you understand that that is really the ultimate reality, because anything that happens is coming straight from God, then you won't fear other people. And if there are people who are fear-inducing in your life, if you imagine that ring around them, that their influence only goes to a certain place, but not further than that place, then you can feel free of of them on a certain level. It's a helpful first step anyway. And that's just maybe something to have in mind. So, so Hashem should bless us that, you know, as we head into this, this new part of the year, as a very exciting new part of the year, you know, it was just, uh, it was just, maybe 52 days ago, that it was Pesach, that we were sitting 
around the Pesach table eating matzah. You know, one of the great things about keeping the mitzvahs is that you really, your life really gets longer. And what I mean by that is, doesn't sitting at the Seder table feel like like six months ago or something like that? It seems like a long time ago. It's just a few weeks ago. Right? And how about Purim? Purim was just a, a month before that. You know? That seems like forever ago. Purim? So, now, now we're heading into, you know, this more interesting period of the year. This is like going into the summer, approaching the three weeks, you know? And uh, it's a chance, really, to completely get it together and to really strive. Um, I want to just, uh, very quickly, won't really be doing justice to it, but just very, very quickly, just add one teaching that I read uh, from Reb Shlomo that I thought was important about Shavuos which is basically, he says, you know, as deep as the revelation was, the giving of the Torah was on Shavuos, it didn't stop us from making the golden calf. Right? We still made the golden calf. He said, and of course, Moshe Rabbeinu on Shavuos, well, not on Shavuos, but after Shavuos, broke the luchos, broke the tablets. And it says that in the Arnakodesh, in the golden ark, we had not just the whole tablets that we got when Moshe Rabbeinu went up the second time, but the broken tablets were put next to the whole tablets. So, you could think, on a more superficial level, well, where else are we going to put the broken tablets? We've got to put them somewhere, right? Maybe we could bury them. Maybe that's one idea. I mean, if a safer Torah, Torah scroll becomes unkosher, you do bury it, so... It's not unreasonable to think we could have buried them, but that's not it. So, or, well, what do you do with them? Maybe, well, let's put them in the ark. I guess that's the only place where you would put them. That's the most coveted place to put them, the most honorable place to put them. But it's deeper than that. The idea is that the broken tablets and the whole tablets are really one unit. They're really one unit, and you need them both because they're both teaching something that you need in order to be whole. Okay, so Rip Shlomo says basically the mistake that we allowed ourselves to make when we got the first tablets was that we really got them, meaning to say that, okay, I'm done. I have it. I possess it. I possess the Torah. He says that attitude can lead to arrogance. And so we had to lose it on one level to realize that we didn't have it completely because it's infinite. You can't master the whole thing if it's infinite. And the problem is is that sometimes we think we just have it and it's ours and we cut ourselves off from it with this attitude. So this is the greatness of the broken luchos. The broken luchos are teaching us that we can never fully possess it and that we have to strive and strive and strive Constantly. So we have to have it on some level because you, you have to have some Torah education. You have to. So those are the whole tablets. 
So on some level you do have something concrete, but on another level you have to realize, I can never fully have it, so I have to keep on striving. And he says that, that this is, we have a, a teaching in the Talmud that God gives us the refuah lifnei hamaka, the healing before the sickness. He says, what's the refuah before Shavuos? Is Lagba Omer. Lagba Omer is the yurt site of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. Lagba Omer is the headquarters of the secrets of the Torah. So when we learn the secrets of the Torah before receiving the Torah, we're learning how deep the Torah is. How we'll never be able to possess the entire Torah. But it's not a secret that alienates. It's a secret that brings you closer. See, Rabbi Shlomo says a true mystery is... See, you know the difference between a secret I would tell you and a secret from the Torah? If I tell you, you want to hear something about so-and-so, then when I tell you, okay, you know. But a real mystery from the Torah, when I tell you, you still don't know. Okay? That's, that's a real secret. So when we learn the secrets of the Torah, it tells us how infinite it is, and it's not an alienating secret. It's not, you'll never know. It's a secret that fills your heart with longing. And so when we have that built in, when Shavuos comes, we can receive the Torah on the deepest level. And he says, this is why the Jews are compared to the light of the moon. He says, nighttime is a time of secrets. This is when you do learning, the Gomorrah says. And this is really, it's a special, special time. And he says that the moon, what happens is the moon receives the light of the sun. Right? But when it becomes full, it says, you know what? I still didn't get it. I've got to start all over again. And so it starts again. The moon starts again. So that's us. That's us. We have to realize in our Torah study, we have to rededicate ourselves. We have to say, okay, I learned the Chumash. Now let me learn through it with the commentary of Rashi. Okay, I learned it with Rashi. Now I've got to start again. I still don't have it. I've got to do it with the Balaturim. Okay, I did it with Rashi and the Balaturim. I've got to do it again with the Rambam. I've got to do it with Rabbeinu Bachai, I've got to do it with the Yorah Chaim. I've got to do it, right, with Rabbi Wolfson. I've got to just keep on... I still don't have it. I still don't have it. So, let's resolve to take upon ourselves to be that Aaron. Because the Talmud compares each and, one of us, each and every one of us to that golden ark that had the tablets inside of it. To realize we have the whole tablets inside of us, and the broken tablets inside of us, and to understand that that's a unit and to allow it to fuel us to future growth, to future depth.